Shansky, I am the coordinator of the Reform Baptist Network, and I thank you, Grace Baptist Church, for your willingness to take on the responsibility of hosting the 2023 Reform Baptist Network General Assembly here in your place. And I realize that in doing this, I'm kind of like Gandalf coming to the Shire with a ring in my hand and tossing it into the hands of, of Frodo and Samwise. And I realize that the responsibility I'm giving to you is going to take you out of the tranquil peace of the Shire and you're going to be heading into Middle-earth and Mordor. It's going to be quite a year-long adventure. Now, uh, I was told by Helen Surratt that, oh, it's not going to be that bad, Pastor Mark, she said. We're going to have fun, fun in the kitchen. And that's true. I agree with that, Helen. That's, that's a reality. It will be enjoyable in many ways, but it will be a hassle, and it will take you out of tranquility. And I want your minds to be set regarding this obligation you're taking on and the great cause of the kingdom. Think in 2 Samuel 23, there's this chapter describing David's mighty men. I'm kind of addressing you as Christ's mighty men. Remember how they had fallen in love with David because of a particular endeavor he was involved in, and that was in the Valley of Elah, David stood and looked up the nostrils of this fighting mountain of a machine named Goliath. And David had on his shoulders, in his performance, he had the fate of the entire nation as he was representing them all. And David, with his stone and his sling, took down the foe, and Israel was given a glorious inheritance on the basis of his performance that day. And the mighty men of David who eventually came to follow him and support him and to be his bodyguards, they fell in love with David that day in the Valley of Elah. And they were willing to do anything for their king who had risked all in their behalf. In fact, in 2 Samuel 23, there's the description of these three mighty men who listened to David. When David was in trouble, he was like a deer in the headlights because the Philistines were assaulting Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And David wistfully said, Ah, oh, that I had a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. Meaning, Oh, that I had taken Bethlehem to be our fortress and not the Philistines' fortress. And there were three mighty men who the scriptures indicate to us that they said nothing when they heard this wistful wish of the king whom they loved. And without a word, without hesitation, they devised a plan. They girded up. They headed out. They pierced the Philistine defenses they dodged spears and arrows. They submerged the jug. They fetched the water. And then they brought it back to the king. And they presented it to the king whom they loved. And they said, your majesty, a drink from the well at Bethlehem. You see, for those mighty men who so loved their king, 
who had captured their hearts. His wistful wish was their command. And our king has said to us, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all the things which I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. Beloved, mighty men and women of Christ at Grace Baptist Church, that is the wish of our king. And there is no service that we should be unwilling to engage in. We may lose our tranquility of the Greenville Shire, but that's okay. Our king has called us. May we seek to satisfy him with our serving him with all of our heart and strength and soul. It's a big ask, I know, but it's a glorious king whom we serve. With that in mind, let's go to the word and turn to Psalm 68. And look at verse 5 and 6a from Psalm 68. It says there, A father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you that we have such a glorious Savior. And we pray that, like those men on the road to Emmaus, on that Lord's day, he spoke and their hearts burned with him. We pray that that would be our lot here in Taylor's. In Christ's name, amen. Glenn Staunton tells of passing through the Kansas City airport and seeing above a dividing wall in the airport an amazing thing. What he saw was an infant flying. It was just for a second, and then the infant dropped down below the dividing wall. But then it happened again. The infant was flying. And then again, and Staunton walked around the corner just to see what he expected, and that was a father who was doing the tossing. And of course, the mother was nowhere in sight. And then while he was in Asia, he saw a Chinese dad in the airport doing the same thing with the baby's giggles eloquently communicating delight right across the language divide. So we drew the conclusion that, well, child tossing must be a universal thing. And you think of what a profound lesson for the baby who's learning to figure out his world. He Or she gasps and and holds his breath in sheer terror, flying, saying, holy cannoli! And the the first lesson the child is learning is that this world is a a scary place. But, But then gravity kicks in and he plummets down into the strong hands of dad. And lesson number two then is, though this world seems scary, it's really safe because dad is there for me. And this kind of fatherly psyche, confidence and comfort building is really a universal thing among families. In fact, George MacDonald, who is the mentor of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, he claimed that fatherhood, he said, is the core of the universe. But think about that. 
Fatherhood is the core of the universe. By that I mean there at the helm of our world is an ever-faithful, reliable, and loving father who holds this world together. And, And this gives a confident and comfortable security that enables us to hold ourselves together even when circumstances seemingly leave us free-falling toward disaster. Our Father is there. Now, that's a happy universal truth to consider, but, but sadly for many, it's not a very happy personal thing to ponder. And I say that because for many, fatherhood isn't a sweet and soothing thing, but for many... Fatherhood is a sour and a painful theme because for some who are here in these blue chairs, dad didn't didn't lovingly catch them, but instead savagely dropped them, leaving them, some of you in these chairs even here, to see this world not as a safe place, but a downright sadistic place, or maybe less extreme, just a very hurtful place. And this is epidemically so, isn't it? In 2022, where there is such dysfunctionality in society and family life. So I want to explore this theme, fatherhood at the core of the universe, under three main heads. First, we'll look at the eternal pre-creation ideal. And second, we'll look at the painful post-fall real. And third, we'll look at the wonderful gospel appeal. So come on with me first to the eternal pre-creation ideal. Go way back in time with me. Before the universe was, fatherhood was there that early. And it was there to absolute perfection. You see, I'm saying this is the core. This is the cornerstone on which the world was, was built. I have in my garage back in Holland, Michigan, I've got a bicycle hanging from the wall, and the front wheel has, at the epicenter, a sprocket. You see it there? There there are are 36 spokes that are the core, the epicenter of that wheel, holding those spokes all together, or else they'll all fly apart. Well, profoundly, fatherhood is the sprocket of the universe. That's what I'm suggesting to you. It's fatherhood that holds the universe together. Think with me of the scriptures. John 17, 26, Jesus says, Jesus the Son says, Father, you did love me before the foundation of the world. So fatherhood was there before the world was. In fact, there is this intimate Intertrinitarian union of love between Father and Son that is the core and epicenter of the universe. In fact, the whole universe emanates from that epicenter. Think how Jesus says in John 1 1. In the beginning, it says of Jesus, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, that is the Son, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 says, we saw his glory, the only begotten from the Father. It says in verse 18, he was in the bosom of the Father. 
as its father and son working together who created the universe. I'm sure Pastor Mark or Pastor Jamie have spoken to you of Proverbs chapter 8 and wisdom, which is the pre-creation logos, that is the word. And it describes there in Proverbs 8, Jesus speaking really, wisdom talking, I, Jesus is saying, I was beside him, my father. I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his earth as father, son, joyfully, singingly created the universe. Think of how the dolphin first popped up out of the water and did a flip and and the father laughed. And then the, the hummingbird flew and floated backwards and the son giggled. There was this love fest between father and son and the world emanated from fatherhood. It even says there in one one of Genesis, let there be light. And, and from that father-son relationship, there was light and night and day and then heaven and earth and sky and sea and plants and sun and moon and planets and stars and birds and fish and beasts and man and woman and fatherhood. Father and son. Fatherhood held it all together. Jesus said in John 17, 5, Father, glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. So you see, fatherhood isn't merely a figure that's familiar to us so that God borrows it like an anthropomorphism. God is said to have had that God has eyes that range to and fro throughout the earth. Does God really have eyes? No. That's just a metaphor. But when I speak of God as father, God really is a father. It's not simply that he's like a father. God is fatherhood. And so we see that the Trinitarian God, fatherhood and sonship are at the core of the universe. And so the world is presented to us in the scriptures, like in John 17, John 1, Genesis chapter 1. The world is presented to us not as a, as a, a hubless, sprocketless chaos that's vulnerable to flying apart at any moment. You see, no, this is not a dark and empty and threatening and chaotic and impersonal place at all, this world. That, that's the world of the atheistic nihilist. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The philosopher over at Furman, who's not a Christian, may declare that if you travel to the epicenter, to the helm of the universe, you'll find there an empty eye socket. There's nobody home. There is no God. That's a lie. Because God, look what it says in Psalm 68.5, a father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God sits at the helm of the universe on his throne. God the Father is the core of our world, even as it says there in Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is a dwelling place, 
and underneath are his everlasting arms. This world is not a harsh, chaotic place, but at the core of this universe, our world is a father, and he has everlasting arms. When we are in our harrowing flights, we can know we will have a soft landing as his children because underneath are his everlasting arms and his hands. Now, this truth is heart-relaxing and mind-blowing and universe-shifting and soul-bracing to those of us who natively would find ourselves panicked with all kinds of emotional attacks to know that there is a father who is there. Do you sing this song in this place? This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. Do you sing that here? Do you believe that? Or this is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hands the wonders have wrought. Those hands, those wonderful hands which will catch us in our harrowing flights. I still remember when I was young, I, I had a really good dad. I was given a good dad. I remember when I was a little, I would rock in the chair and my dad, those big hands would hold me. And I really felt safe because my father was there. I'd watch my baby sister, 12 years younger than I, my dad rocking in that green shag carpeting, and little Mary Jo would be in his arms, and he would sing to her, he's got the whole world in his hands. And you're, you're going to be a dad soon, God willing, of two little ones. And you have the, the sacred responsibility of imaging to those two little ones when you sit at the table what God the Father is like. Because you, you're made in the image of God. And they had to see in you a reflection of the holy, holy, holy God. That's what fathers are supposed to be. Made in the image of God. And so your kids living in your house, rocking on your chair. These, having been given a dad with hands like that and a heart like that, your kids should be infused with daring steel in their soul because as they fly through the universe, they should be well-adjusted, tranquilly at rest, brimming with joy and giggling through the flights of light because the God who has eternal, everlasting arms at the helm of the universe, he's like my dad. And it's well with my soul that I feel like I'm going to have a crash landing. My dad is working all things for my good. Therefore, your kids ought to be confident, risk-taking, bold, and full of loving kindness because they know they have a father like you, like him. And that's where we ought to be too, right? As children of God. So that's the eternal pre-creation ideal. But come on with me now to the painful post-fall real. The painful post-fall real. You see, though the eternal father is the creator at the core of our world, we know that's true theologically, but that's not what we see today historically. Because the fathers who are supposed to be rocking on chairs with godlike hands, 
not so much do they imitate a holy, holy, holy God. As we observe what's taking place today, we're bombarded with, bombarded with contrary images. Dads should be, in 2022, displays of who God really is, but that's not what we see. We say such, see such dysfunctionality and such brokenness. I read a while back a counselor who had a client who was really mixed up and messed up emotionally. And as the counselor explored, he got out of his client this story that when the boy was young, his dad put him up on the front porch. You know those old front porches where you got the the concrete and then you've got the uh, slab underneath it. You put the little boy up on the front porch and the dad, the dad stepped back and said, okay, jump into my hand, son. And the little boy was uneasy. I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Trust me, trust me. And he, he, he jumped and dad caught him. Oh, that was a good thing, a good, put him back up. He says, okay, one more step further back. Okay, son, jump. Oh, that's further, dad. That's further. Trust me, trust me. Jumped, dad caught him. Put him up again and took two steps back. Son jump, and the son jumped, and the dad took one more step back. A little boy slammed his forehead against the concrete, and there was blood. And the little boy said, Dad, why did you do that? He says, important lesson of life, never trust anyone. What, what cruelty, what, what brutality, what scarring of the emotions This boy was handicapped for decades. See, the father had done the work of the serpent, who was a liar and a murderer and a destroyer. Just like that serpent in Genesis 3 assaulted our first father, he slithers around in the 20-teens and 2020s, assaulting fatherhood today. And ever since Genesis 3, fatherhood has been snake-bitten. You see, Adam had the destiny of his whole family, all of his sons and daughters, in his hands, didn't he? But Adam shamelessly let them down. He dropped them. And so mankind experienced the fall. The threat was, you will surely die if you eat the forbidden fruit. And Adam and all of his children, all of his sons and daughters were expelled from the presence of the Father as they went out east of Eden. And ultimately, they would be expelled from the presence of the Father in outer darkness where there would be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. See, that's what bad fatherhood does. It brings a fall and a harm to one's offspring. And like Adam, every subsequent father, poisoned with sin, stumbles onto this same crooked path, emanating lies about God and his world. And the result is... Fathers maim and handicap and wound their offspring. Look biblically at the memorable parade of fatherhood. We see not just Adam. We see in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech. In fact, it says in Genesis 4 of Lamech, he says, I've killed a boy for striking me. And some commentators say he killed his own son. Lamech did. Fathers can be maiming. Oh, we say, let's go further. Let's find a good father. How about Noah? 
Well, Noah was a righteous man, but we see even Noah got drunken, and he exposed his children to sexual perversion. Cursed be Canaan. Ham's sexual perversion resulted from Noah's folly of drunkenness. Then we think of uh, Abraham. Certainly he will be a good father, but even Abraham, we see, endangers his wife Sarah by twice putting her into the Gentile harem, threatening her life. That's a bad father example as well. Then we go to Isaac, who had favorites. He liked Ishmael better than he liked Jacob, and favoritism and fatherhood poisoned that family. And then we see Jacob had the same problem of favoritism. Joseph was his fave. He gives to Joseph a coat of many colors, and that snake bites that family. Where can we find a good father in the scriptures? Ah, we can go to the priesthood. Surely Abraham will, excuse me, surely Aaron will echo godly fatherhood. But we say that Aaron fashions a golden calf, misguiding his sons, Nadab and Abihu, so that they end up offering strange fire to the Lord, and they are consumed by the Lord because of bad fatherhood example. Let's go to the kingship. Israel finally gets a king, Saul. Surely he will be a good father. No, we see Saul's jealousy sucks him into using his daughters like pawns. As we see, he then throws a spear at his son, Jonathan. There's a bad father in Saul. How about David? Surely David will be a good dad. But we see even David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And he murders Uriah. And he's a loiterer in his raising Amnon and an enabler with Absalom. And so we look at this parade of bad fathers right through the scriptures. But I don't mean to point fingers at others because my mugshot is right there in this gallery of bad dads. I think of back in 1987. I was pastoring a church in Dayton, Ohio, and our four-year-old Jared was in my basement with me there, and I had put these rings up on the rafters of the basement, and I uh, had my chin-up rings and Dad, Jared saw Dad doing chin-ups. He wanted to be like Dad. He said, Dad, can I, can I hang on those things up there? Well, sure. And I, I put a mattress down underneath, and I, and I hung them up there. And I said, let's time. Let's see how long you can hang. And while I was looking at my watch, he slipped through, and he banged, and I mispositioned the mattress, and his head smacked against the concrete floor like a bowling ball, and there was blood everywhere, and I'm carrying him upstairs. And you know what he said to me? Dad, you promised, you promised you would catch me. You see, my hands were to be a display of God's hands and such poor judgment, such folly, such bad coordination endangered my son. I wasn't a protector. I had dented his notion of fatherhood. And I put a dent, no doubt, in his view of the, of the world as I fall right there in line with, with Adam but not just in my bad physical coordination, but even in my own spiritual corruption. Jared and my other children saw my anger eruptions, expressing my own selfishness. They saw me making promises that sometimes I, 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 I didn't keep. Uh, even early on in my pastoring, where's Lorenzo? He's still, yeah, there you are. 
You ever become a pastor? Don't do what I did. Early on when I was a pastor, I had certain conservative members in my church. And they had certain expectations about how my children should have lived and how my children should have dressed. And for me, because of my own pastoral insecurity, I in some ways sought to purchase the smile of some of my most conservative members by mortgaging off in some way my relationship with my children. Lorenzo, don't do that. Be a, don't be a man fear. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. Be a man of integrity if you would, if you would pastor a church or elder a church or, or be a deacon in the church. Because I know I scarred my Jared and my children by in some ways giving them a crippled worldview about who God is because I was not the ideal father by any stretch. And I know in these blue chairs there are There are souls sitting here, and some of you have some pretty deep man wounds and woman wounds, don't you? There are stories beyond some of our imagination regarding what has happened and the way that you have been dropped by a parent in your life. Maybe it was, I don't know, maybe abusive discipline. I believe it's true that he who spares the rod hates his son. And you loves him as careful discipline. Corporal punishment is an important biblical ingredient in parenting. But not all discipline was done biblically. And some of you have scars because of it. Maybe there was drunkenness in your family and you absorbed beatings. Maybe there was sexual abuse or incest. Maybe some of you were abandoned by divorce or abandoned by workaholism or abandoned by aloofness. I read recently of a man who summarized his dad. He says, in my memory, my dad was always grumpy. Seemed like he was in a perpetual state of waking up from a nap. And my dad just struck me as someone who just wanted to be left alone. And some of you had dads like that. You see, the devil in the 2020s, as we think of in this room, there are humiliations and hurts beyond our imaginations. The devil schemes, aiming his flaming darts at the institution of fatherhood. He wants to make it to be a dumpster fire. Have you heard fatherhood isn't necessary? Fatherhood isn't a healthy place. It's not a safe place. It's a predatory place. It's a dangerous place. Far better just to have harmless sperm banks to replace fatherhood in our day. And some there that are here have an aching pain, a father hunger that attests to the thought that, oh, I wish I had a dad. I wish I had a dad who was a holy dad, a loving dad, a kind dad, a selfless dad, a gracious dad. You know, that ache in your heart testifies something. As Augustine says, our hearts are restless till we find rest in thee. I'm just telling you, there is in this world, there is in this universe, the ideal father for whom your heart craves. And so we have... We have seen the eternal pre-creation ideal and the painful post-fall real 
But now consider with me the wonderful gospel appeal. The wonderful gospel appeal. And this comes to neglected, abused, and scarred orphan souls with that primal ache. Oh, that I had a true father. In Holland, Michigan, we have what we call the Tulip Festival Parade. It's in May when the tulips come out, and the parade route on 8th Street is just packed. It can be seven, eight, nine deep, and think of a first grade class because you get school off on the day of the Tulip Festival Parade. First grade class is there on 8th Street, maybe 25 students, and the kids are in the back, and they're trying to see, and one of the students has his dad there, and the dad picks up the student, puts him up on the shoulders, and that boy can see everything. And he delights in being on his dad's shoulders. But there's one of his classmates whose dad divorced, and he's not seen him in years. And when he looks up at that boy, he thinks, oh, that I had a dad like that. Oh, that I could be adopted by a dad like that. Well, I just have word for you regarding this wonderful gospel appeal, and that is that God the Father has undertaken an unthinkable, universe-upheaving mission to bring bleeding hearts home to him. Like the blueprint of the gospel is given in Galatians 4, 4, where it says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, that, listen now, he might redeem us under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You who are fatherless, orphans, you can be adopted. Just think of what that Psalm 68 says. A father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. So if you have an aching and a lonely heart, I'm telling you about this glorious plan that you would be adopted. John 1.18 says, The only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father. Listen, this is outrageous. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. Now listen now. As many as received him, he gave them the right. Even the likes of you sitting there in this blue chair. Uh, you, you say, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. Yeah, even, it says anyone, any who receives him, shall be given the right to become the children of God. This is this wonderful gospel appeal. There are adoption papers laying out here this morning that you can sign and you can be part of. Just consider this wonderful gospel appeal and just this, this element of the Heavenly Father's adopting us. In this, in this dangerous world, we can be adopted. You ever see Andrew Green Gables, anybody? Anybody? Hands up. Ah, oh, you're exposed. You men, you watched it too, didn't you? Just like I did many times. You know, Anne, she's in this orphanage, and she goes to Green Gables, but she's not the boy they wanted, and she's sent back. And, you know, the, the reality is, the original novel says she, she was sent all the way back to the orphanage, and she was actually in train station on the way back to the orphanage. And there was this creepy guy that came to her with candy in the train station. He says, 
Look at this candy I have for you, cute little girl. Take it now. There's more with me in the carriage. And Anne sensed the danger, and she pushed him away, and she ran away. How dangerous it is in this predatory world, isn't it? But you know, Matthew Cuthbert actually went to the orphanage and, and got her and took her back home and basically fathered her. And he gave her puff sleeves, didn't he? And he, came, he, was like, he was like a godly father to Anne. Well, this is what we have here, that God the Father realizes that we are in a dark cave in a predatory world that seeks to abuse us and harm us and maim us. And God the Father sends his son with the grocery list of names, names on a list, the book of life written before the foundation of the world. Victor, your name was in that book of life. And Christ came to the dark cave looking for you. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's looking for names here, looking for souls here. This morning, Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and I'll lose nothing, but I will raise them up on the last day. And we know the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus came, and he had this business that his Father had given to him. In fact, first time we see the Lord Jesus in his public ministry, we see them there in the Jordan River being baptized. As he comes up out of the river, God the Father speaks. What does he say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well pleased. Yeah, you have a granddaughter, grandson. My little grandson, Remmer. Remmer comes up out of the bathtub. He's about two years old. You know, darling, they are, especially when they get out of the bathtub. You pull them out and you, 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 you wrap them up. All the bubbles are all washed away and you, you wrap them up in that beefy towel and you say, all clean, all clean. they darling and delightful. You see, the likes of you sitting in that blue chair with all you've done and all of the corruption you've engaged in, in Christ Jesus, you're, you're washed in his salvation you're, you're wrapped up in the, in the beefy towel of his righteousness. Not a thread of it is yours. It's all his work. And the heavenly father looks at you if you are believing in Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He sees in you this morning, you who he's adopted, you are all clean. All clean. You are the delight of the holy, holy, holy Father's eyes. You're the apple of his eye. And as pleased as the Father was with the Son and coming up out of the waters of the Jordan, he is pleased with you this day if you be wrapped up in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an outrageous salvation that is the Father's adopting us. Even to the point where you think of how on Resurrection Day, and Mary Magdalene sees it's Jesus, and she comes and clasps his feet. And Jesus says, don't touch me, for he says, I've not gone to the Father. He says, I go to my Father, Mary, and I go to your Father. See, because with the, that price that he paid on the cross, Jesus, Jesus hung on that cross like a 
criminal strapped to an electric chair. And the full voltage of God's wrath was absorbed for all of the elect, absorbed by the Lord Jesus Christ there on those hours on the cross until it was finished. All of our sins were downloaded onto the hard drive of Christ's soul and he took all of the horrors and the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth all poured into that one thick cup and he drank it down until it was finished. So there's nothing, not a drop left for us on judgment day and we can come home to the father like prodigals smelling of the swine but the father running to us and and hanging on us and giving a ring on our finger sandals on our feet he's killed the fatted calf his own son in our behalf and we receive the full inheritance he's our father He kisses us even this morning with this gospel. So this is the wonderful gospel appeal of the Heavenly Father's adopting us. But think also of the Heavenly Father's carrying us. The Heavenly Father's carrying us. Okay, I I believe I was saved at, at 17 at a fellowship of Christian athletes camp at Central Michigan University. But now I'm I'm in my early 60s, and I can say that all the way from my conversion to my present life now, my my father has carried me. He's carried me all the way through this chaotic and and threatening place because you think about it, who who can be given to panic attacks when we really realize who we are as his children. We are on his shoulders He carries us above the floods of evil that would prey on us. In fact, it even says in Deuteronomy 33, 12, it refers to Benjamin. It says there, Benjamin, Benjamin, he is the beloved of the Lord who dwells in security. The Lord shields his Benjamin all day long between his shoulders. I just think... How are you going to get two little boys on your shoulders simultaneously, one at a time? But but it'll be a safe place for them. You think of how glorious it is to be on the shoulders of a good dad, of a holy, holy, holy father. It says in Deuteronomy 131, it says, The Lord carried you, Israel, in the wilderness as a father carries his son. So since I was 17 years old, maybe you, maybe you were saved when you were seven. Maybe you were saved when you were 37. We who are the children of God are carried through this snake-infested, enemy-laden, feet-shredding world by our Heavenly Father. You know that footprints in the sand kind of a story thing, two footprints along the way, only one set of footprints. He's carried us through dangers and toils and snares and This gives us, instead of having a panic attack outlook on life, if we really take, you know, why so downcast, O my soul, right? Psalm 42. Why so disturbed within me? Get that image in mind that we have a God who is carrying us through this world on his shoulders. I know there are prowling lions who seek to devour us. But in reality, our Father is carrying us. Consider it all joy. My brethren, when you go through various trials, they all come down from the Father of lights, 
with whom there is no shifting shadows. We were golfing yesterday, right, Scott? And it was blue sky, but then a cloud would come and was shadowy. And then blue sky again. But all God's children are always in the blue sky of God's favor. Everything is being caused to work for our good. Even the, even the, the loss, the, the miscarriage of a little child. Oh, we, I have a little, I have a son, my second born son, Calvin. And Calvin and Sarah, their first child was diagnosed in the womb as having a genetic condition called hydrops. And we knew that when Isaac was born, he probably wouldn't live very long. He came out of the womb, basically full-grown, pink. But his lungs should have been the size of my fists. Instead, they were the size of my thumbs. And as a result, he came out pink, then he turned pale, and then he turned blue, and then he turned gray, and they had to pull the plug because he couldn't live. And There's my son. There's my son, the birth of my firstborn son was the happiest day of, of, of my life. But for my Calvin, it was the, the saddest day of his life. And here's this daddy trying to hold his son, but his hands are so uncoordinated, he can't, he can't give what his son needs. And, and, and Calvin's broken, then pulled the camera back further, and there's a, this dad looking into the ICU at, a, at his own son who's a dad, and, and I can't do anything either. And then, but you go back further, there's another father who's at the helm of the universe who is causing all things to work for the good. And I just know on the last day, and we see all that he's doing, it's going to take our breath away regarding the good that resulted from this. And so, what kind of an ICU ward are you in right now? What kind of a dark shadow are you under right now? If God is your father, he is causing, don't ask me how, but you'll find on the last day, he's causing all things to work for your good. So, why so downcast? Oh, my soul. Why so disturbed within me when our heavenly father is carrying us? But just, just think of how you, the heavenly father also captivates us. The love of Christ constrains us. I, I was told that Anne of Green Gables, because of Matthew's love, giving her fatherly care and puff sleeves, she would have scrubbed every floor in Avonlea if Matthew wanted her to. And shouldn't the love of us, Christ, constrain us in such a way? What, what do you want me to do, Father? You've, you've not spared your son. You freely gave him up for me. And so like Joseph, when he's tempted by Mrs. Potiphar, her negligee and her perfume, what does Joseph say? How could I do such a thing and sin against my God? And if you're tempted to, to gossip, you're tempted to envy, you're tempted to be dark in your life we should say to the enemy who would tempt us how could we do such a thing and sin against God who spared not his son for me that causes us to gouge out right eyes and cut off right hands and throw them far from us but just lastly consider the heavenly father's catching us in this wonderful gospel appeal the heavenly father's catching us man is destined to die once and then comes the judgment there's a guy in our church named Glenn. And about three years ago, Glenn was diagnosed with cancer. 
and he came home from hospice to his own house, his old farmhouse. It was wintry, craggy trees, bleak, dark climate. 3 a.m., Glenn wakes up. You okay, Glenn? He says, yeah, I just, sometime at night the dragons come out. And sometimes I just wonder, what, when I breathe my last, what, what's going to happen to me? Am I gonna, where am I going to go? And I says, well, what do, you, what do you think that brings you peace? And he pulled out of his pajama pocket this, this piece of paper, which was from John 10, 9. It says, if you confess Jesus is Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. He says, Pastor, this is all I got. A crumpled promise. And it was three days later on a Saturday morning that Glenn breathed his last and he died. And I haven't seen Glenn since then. Because basically what Glenn did is he went out to the front porch, that old farmhouse, and he, he leaped into eternity. And where'd he go? Where'd he go? Did he suffocate in annihilation? He is no more? Or did he, did he split hell wide open? Because he's a sinner. No, no. The gospel says, he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. The gospel says that the eternal God is a dwelling place. And underneath are everlasting arms. He was received. He was caught in his free fall into eternity by his Father who promised. Jesus has said, let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go there to prepare a place for you. And you're, you're, you're a younger person, you're an older person. You're going to stand in that porch and you're going you're to be tipped into eternity. And I think of that song by Chris Rice. Many of you may know it. It speaks of weak and wounded sinner. And then it says, come to Jesus and live. You know that hymn? The last verse says this. With your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye. Then go in peace and laugh on glory's side. And what? Fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus and live. Just asking you, sit in the blue chair. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? You must. Look, today is the day of salvation. I got no guarantee about tomorrow. You may breathe your last uh, somewhere out in Brushy Creek Road, but today is the day of your salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus. I don't care if it's the first time or the 10,000th and first time. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will live. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. You spared not your Son. You gave himself up for us all. Please, Father, may it be that there would be adoption papers signed this hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.